and welcome to Pints and Politics, the June 11th, 2020 edition. Joining me today for this conversation about the impact of the pandemic on nonprofits in Peterborough and what sort of changes would help nonprofits as the pandemic lifts is Jonathan Bennett from Laraday Consulting. Laraday specializes in working with public sector and nonprofit groups, issues of uh, leadership development, tra- staff training. Also, Kirsten Armbrust, Executive Director of the CCRC, that's the Community Counseling Resource Centre. Yvonne Lay from the New Canadian Centre. Yvonne is the Director of Community Development at the NCC. Next is Michael Vanderherberg, who's Housing Director at One City Peterborough. And also joining us will be Brianna Salmon, Executive Director of GreenUp. So, thanks to everyone for making time for this. Now, as this pandemic lurches forward and planning for anything beyond two weeks seems nigh on impossible, we we continue to struggle to believe that eventually our public institutions, our governments and, and businesses will all open again. But more and more voices are telling us that our future may be quite different from our past. Some businesses may not survive. For example, uh, unemployment probably will remain high. Government funding may be reduced. And some former realities of our economy may change. All of us know that for nonprofit organizations, survival is always an issue fraught with unknowns. I sit on the board of a local nonprofit here in town, and you know, planning from the future is not impossible. We can't, we don't know what next year holds. Uh, fundraising predictions and government support are always uh, like structures built on shifting sands. It's always a challenge to plan for the future. Now, part of my motivation for hosting this panel is to make our listeners more aware of the new realities that all of you are dealing with. Another motive is to look at the positive constructive changes that could be implemented for your organizations and the people you serve as our lives return to to normal, whatever that is. Now, I have normal in quotation marks because uh, there was much about quote-unquote normal before this pandemic that needed to be changed. Now we, as a community, have an opportunity to make those changes. So what changes would you like to see uh, for your organizations and for the people you serve? So uh, here comes the first question. Let's, uh, let's start at home. What has been the impact of the pandemic on your organizations and on the people you serve here in Peterborough? It's Yvonne from the New Canadian Centre. I'll jump in here. We have also had staff working on developing a suite of virtual programming. So our groups, our English youth and women's groups have all moved online and we're actually seeing increased attendance numbers with these uh, virtual programs than we this time last year. So all our staff off-site at this point, but we are gradually testing what it would look like to move uh, back to on-site by uh, delivering some tax clinics for our clients at this point. Because, yeah, the biggest hurdle that we're seeing is for newcomers who are struggling with computer literacy as many, many things move online. 
So it's not just the access to technology. A lot of people are doing this from their phone. So, if, for example, if they're taking English classes at Fleming, they'd be doing it from their phone. But if you're already struggling with, for some people, literacy in their own language, and then having to deal with computer literacy on top of that, that's a big hurdle. So that's something that we're seeing. Anyone else? Impacts of uh, this pandemic on your your organizations and clients? Uh, Bill, this is Brianna from GreenUp. Yeah, I think the impact for GreenUp and for the communities we serve has been pretty significant. As you mentioned, the sector already existed on shifting sands. And so I think for nonprofit organizations, but also for the populations they serve, many of which are quite vulnerable populations, you know, we've seen a lot of challenges around um, resilience and sustainability and capacity to, you know, to shift and respond to the, the really challenging context that we're all experiencing. Green Up, Lexi and New Canadian Centre has been doing our best to, to move our programs online or to identify opportunities for invention or creativity around how we're able to, to support environmental sustainability and climate action during the this time, but certainly it's it's been a challenge to um, to negotiate our programming and and to transition our work to a more remote context uh, during this pandemic. So we're we're doing our best to to keep the climate crisis part of the conversation as we navigate this really challenging health crisis. Anyone else? I'll jump in there, Bill. This is Michael uh, from One City sure. My work has changed significantly over the last few months, and I think one of the the most interesting changes has been seeing the the difference in our housing sites between those that where we house people coming out of the prison system and where we house people coming out of homelessness. So as a, an essential for being out there managing multiple sites, I'm exposing myself to a lot of risk on a daily basis. Um, I've been tested for COVID-19 three times now, and I plan on uh, getting tested uh, often, or at least while there are still active and new cases uh, growing in Peterborough. The difference between the sites is that often in, in the, or what I've observed is, is that in the side or people housing that we have for people coming out of homelessness, COVID-19 has not made a difference at all. Uh, and they're, they're living their lives as normal, which significantly increases the risk of service, um, people who are working with those, that, that population. And, and then I have to then uh, drive across town to another place, men coming out of the prison system, it's we've almost locked down those houses uh, and the amount of uh, PPE that is being used in and around the home is exceptional. So it's it's I think what's been unique for, for, for me is the, the shift shifting landscape or the, the, the way the different ways that different populations have responded to this pandemic, some with ambivalence and some with just this very regard for the, their own safety. And then uh, then the PPE or the, 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 the precautions that I need to take place myself so that I don't become a contact point between those different places makes my, my job all, all that more challenging. I can imagine. And, of course, you live with your family, and so there's children involved, and that's an added burden of concern, no doubt. Now, what about on the financial side of life? Will Where will the money come from in order to get organizations up and running again as restrictions are, how shall I say, lessened or somewhat toned down? And activity levels increase because I would imagine that fundraising has taken a hit. I can jump in there, Bill, if you'd like. It's, sure, uh, please. 
It's Jonathan from Laraday. So, you know, we serve only nonprofit organizations, obviously locally and, and across the broader region, but, but also across Ontario and in some cases right across the country. And I'd say there's a really um, wide variety of experience our clients have had over the past couple of months and, and especially as they start to look forward. And it's often quite sector specific. Obviously, organizations that are uh, healthcare related have moved from doing, you know, kind of important work to urgent work. And uh, they've been busier than ever. They've been hiring. Typically, their fundraising has gone up. And, and, and it's a really, it's kind of all, all guns blazing right now in order for them to just be able to cope, as it were. Social services, we've seen a bit of a mixed bag, depending on the ministries and or the municipalities that fund them. Most agencies are looking for their funders to be a lot more flexible. Uh, in the delivery of their accountability agreements. Uh, they're looking for extensions and some innovation in terms of how uh, organizations can repurpose money so they can still meet their mandate and serve clients, but in new and different ways. And I imagine my colleagues here on the panel will get to some of the ways they're doing that. And then in some sec sectors, it's been uh, quite devastating. Certainly have done some work for arts organizations recently and they've, you know, nonprofit arts organizations uh, that rely on things like openings and galleries and, you know, audiences uh, have just been essentially decimated. So and they're really struggling to think about creative ways to hang on, as it were, over the you know next 12 to 18 months. So they're ready to reemerge. So it's pretty it's, it's a pretty wide range. And I would say, you know, it probably feels like because of the huge job losses that have happened that there's, you know, that that would necessarily translate to fewer fundraising dollars. And I would say in some cases, yes, but in some cases, no. Uh, some organizations have been very successful at fundraising through this period and have actually raised a ton of money, you know, right in the midst of the time when you think that people wouldn't be able to give. They've actually given more. Others, uh, others have not been able to because they're major fundraising events, you know, like some of the biggest charities in Canada are really reporting, you know, 30, 40, 50% down in fundraising because of they just missed the opportunity of such a large uh, fundraising events that they, that they hold annually. Now, are you, well, let me ask it another way. Is the connection that I'm making between a rise in unemployment and job loss and stress in fundraising, is that uh, from what uh, at least you're saying, Jonathan, that connection may not be entirely valid. I, too, have heard of organizations that are seeming to fundraise quite well during the pandemic and aren't experiencing it, uh, experiencing the downturn. On the other hand, there are those who, who are, as you, as you rightly point out, uh, arts organizations that are being uh, clobbered. So any, any thoughts on that? Uh, just to say that, yeah, I think you've got that right. I, th I think that there's just a really wide variety of uh, uh, experience, and it really depends on the sector, and it really depends on the kind of organization that a nonprofit is. If if you have a pretty narrow base in terms of your funding, if you're primarily government funding, government funded, and you have annualized funding, many organizations haven't actually seen cuts or, or a downturn yet. 
it may happen. There are some sectors for sure that are pretty nervous. And I imagine there's some folks on the call that uh, will, will jump in on that. But there's others that are actually seeing an increase because they're doing urgent work right now that is requiring one-time funding. So it's really, you know, what we see with our clients is just, it's just really varied and you can't paint it all with one brush. That's all. Anyone else on that point? Just to sort of follow up on what Jonathan was saying, I think that um, there's also the long-term impacts are still really unclear right now. Like there's CCRC has been lucky to have received, you know, some grants from the Community Foundation of Greater Peterborough to help in our certain programs and our housing programs and our professional counseling program, which has been really great because as we, talked about the um, you know fundraising in general ours has um, gone down our major event we moved to a virtual platform last Friday but it's not the same as having uh, 450 people packing the memorial center you know naming that tune right which is our typical jukebox mania but but I think it's also at least from our perspective it's the uncertainty of the longer term effect of what the funding is going to look like like we know that you know there has been some rallying in the community to raise some funds for certain issues but then we don't know how long we're going to be in you know these situations with increased job loss or people not getting back to work and how that will impact down the road and we're also kind of at ccrc waiting a little bit to see if there's and expecting and trying to sort of prep ourselves for a real influx of clients needing services the longer things go on. And, and that's pretty hard to predict, of course. Right. And of course, the uh, what we're learning, at least the uh, no doubt all of you have read many of the same articles that uh, come over social media and uh, on the various news sites, that the job losses at least initially were primarily in uh, the more vulnerable sectors of the economy, the uh, service sectors, predominantly women, and that for a lot of people, uh, working online is now the new mode. In fact, I've heard, read commentary, the fact that uh, we don't know what the, is going to happen to the commuter lifestyle once this lifts, because a number of organizations, both public and private sector, have discovered that their people can work at home, which is a whole other issue. Now, are the assistance programs for nonprofits that have been announced by the federal government turning out to be effective for you on an organizational level? Are the programs aimed at individuals turning out to be performing as designed? Any thoughts on that? Some of that is still, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, we've been able to receive the 10% wage subsidy, so that's been helpful, but there's, it's unclear as to sort of the deadlines, like how long these programs are going to be helpful. Certainly a lot of people are accessing CERB, you know, which you know helped get through certain time periods, but we know that there's a lot of people still missing from some of the government programs, like people who are on disability, who, you know, are still living at a, you know, with a very low income, that hasn't changed. And so I think it's, I guess, it's working for some people, but as always, there's people that are left out of the equation, I think. One of the interesting things on our end was that there has been a lot of confusion around the $4 per hour uh, wage supplement that was available for essential workers. So we have one home for 24, uh, that's 24-7 staff uh, that have, and the staff are quite similar to live-in caregivers and PSWs. They were funded federally, though they are not eligible for the provincial $4 per hour wage supplement. So just some, some depending on which where your funder comes from, uh, will determine whether or not you're eligible for for those those supplements. So in our case, we we, we were not eligible and have have not yet received further clarification yet. Difficult. 
Uh, this is Brianna. Um, yeah, I was going to add to some of what's been said. Um, Greenup, I think probably like lots of organizations in the sector, has really diversified funding. Um, we receive funding from all three levels of government, private foundations, um, donors. We have fee-for-service programs. We have sales program, um, sales revenue. So the impact on our organization in the short term has been quite complex. And we have been able to access some of the government support programs, um, including the wage subsidy, uh, which has enabled us to significantly reduce some of the risk associated with retaining staffing levels during the pandemic and has been able sure. to support our staff in ways that are flexible and respond to their um, home lives and needs, uh, which I think is, is really, really important during this time, um, particularly with schools closed and, um, and family life looking really different for folks. So, yeah, the, the government funding programs, and in particular the wage subsidy, has been very valuable for us. But it's, you know, the rollout of the programs, like Michael said, um, has also been really complex. And uh, there's a lot of uncertainty around you know, who qualifies and how you can qualify and how long the programs will extend for. Um, and that, I think, creates a lot of, takes an emotional toll, both on folks working on behalf of organizations in the way that we are, but also on staff um, and their families. So, um, yeah, well, I think the programs have been um, very helpful. I think it does, yeah, demonstrate or illustrate for us the, the need for social service supports um, and, and economic supports that, that are a bit uh, easier and, and less complex to, to roll out in situations like this one. Um, so, so yeah, we, we do, we've, we're, like Kristen mentioned, still quite uncertain about the, the long-term prospects and, and how we'll be able to support recovery within the organization. But, but our funders and, and uh, the government supports have, and flexibility has certainly been very much appreciated. Ah, thank you. Now, should I, would I be correct in concluding from what everyone has said so far that we don't know, and when I say we, I'm using it in the broadest sense possible, like no one knows how long these support programs are going to be in place for. Is that a fair statement? I would probably jump in to say that we're starting to see those support programs start to be drawn back. So as an example, we were given um, we were given a, a $10,000 kind of opportunity to buy as much per, uh, personal protective equipment as we needed. But now that the the number or the new cases or, or the, the, the feeling of crisis seems to be uh, coming down, that is now we've now been set a deadline that we have to spend that money by a certain date. So the, the, the sense is that where there was extra funding available to get through this pandemic, that's probably drying up at this point. Right, right. And of course, it's uh, it's impossible to get a, a fixed date as to by September 1st or November 1st. It's very much as uh, flying by, uh, how should we say, what's the old expression, the seat of the pants, you know, you, you don't know until you get there. All right. And now for each of your organizations, One City, Peterborough, Greenup, CCRC and the New Canadian Centre, Laraday as a service provider, so you're really in your own category for these purposes. What are the top two or three changes you'd like to see implemented in our community, either by individuals or the community as a whole or any level of government? In other words, what would give you a sense of hope as you look forward to the second half of 2020 and into 2021? Yvonne here. 
I think what would give us a sense of hope really is as a result of what we're experiencing together, that as we head into the new year, uh, what we would be driven by is this increased sense of empathy and understanding about this common experience. Essentially, one of the one of the few experiences that we have that unifies us as a human race throughout globally uh, that is not related to war, that there is a sense of solidarity as we go forward about recognizing the value um, of each other. I'd like us to recognize the value of essential work um, and the people who are uh, participating in essential work now, people who are the caregivers, um, and not just value them for the credentials and occupations. So the grocery store clerk uh, is as important as a healthcare worker at this point. Indeed. Anyone else? Yes, Brianna. Uh, yeah, I really, I really uh, appreciate what Yvonne said, and I, yeah, I do hope that yeah, one of the things I guess that I that I felt hopeful about is the you know the focus on local community that we've seen and the you know and the increased awareness of the impacts of this kind of uh, crisis on the most vulnerable populations and you know and and I hope that it doesn't take a you know another crisis for us to be reminded of um, the you know the social and health inequities that are experienced in our country and in our community and yeah and I feel hopeful that we'll take this you know this collective experience seriously and and work to improve some of the supports and and social safety nets that um, help to you know to support folks who are um who are vulnerable in our society and i think um bill you'd you'd mentioned previously programs like national basic income and you know and really reinvesting in public health and investments in health equity and um, i think those you know those are all hopeful conversations that we're seeing as a result of, of the sort of heightened awareness of our um our community vulnerability and and I think, you know, one of the other things that I that I feel hopeful about is that, you know, there's a real awareness of the need for our, us to support um, local community resilience. And I think right now a lot of that conversation is in relation to, you know, to the health pandemic. But we're also talking more broadly about um, community resilience in the context of um, future crises. Um, and and many of those are related to climate change. So. I think that this has been a really, you know, globally a really eye-opening collective experience, and and I've been able to transform some of what we've learned into, you know, into really serious and committed strategies for for future adaptation. Interesting. Yes, it's uh, when you were describing the future as you see it, uh, Brianna, um, it triggered for me a memory of last week's uh, panel, which was on finance and debt coming out of the pandemic, business issues. And it was uh, Stuart Harrison, Paul Bennett, Gwyneth James, and Sylvia Sutherland. And the observation was made, and I forget uh, by whom, that one of the new realities we might see is a more localized economy. In other words, more dependence uh, on local resources for food, more more focus on buying and supporting local organizations, businesses, and so on, and what changes that would make. Anything else in terms of changes you'd like to see in the community either by individuals or the community in large, that will give you a sense of hope as you look forward in the short term and uh, into 2021. I think this is Kirsten. I think sort of following up on uh, what Brianna said around just mentioning the possibility of basic income, I think one of the things that we've seen is that that's come out of this is, you know, the 
this, to use that as an example, setting the, the amount at um, $2,000 a month and then some other things that have come out of, of you know, trying to top up child tax um, credits or different areas was there seemed to be some recognition, larger recognition that some of the income that people are have been expected and are continuing to be expected to live on is not sufficient, you know, given that the rates they set and the top ups that, that they felt were necessary. So I would hope that some of that will stay along with things like uh, Yvonne talked about the, you know, recognizing some of the essential work that is is being recognized as essential when previously uh, maybe didn't get that same level of understanding, but even the wages involved in some of those situations, um, you know, be it people working at the grocery store, people in long-term care having to juggle, juggle multiple jobs to make ends meet. So I would really hope that all the, the learning and recognition that some of those situations aren't sustainable will not go away, you know, as things start to return back to a more normal that we will keep some of those things so our most vulnerable um, people can and and also people who are, are working at lower levels can have a manageable income to keep themselves and their families you know safe and with the things that they need yes absolutely looking forward to 2021 of course we've all read the articles that i must admit quite jarring for me uh, when they first began to appear about a month and a half ago two months ago that this this pandemic may not be over by the fall in fact may not be over by new years that this could be 10 months and so on so the long-term sustainability of our adaptations is now front and center so let me ask you this there are many beneficial changes we could conjure up that would be wonderful for you but they'd all cost money that at least for many organization is not not likely to be on offer in the near future so how could we focus on non-monetary dependent changes what changes in attitudes and behaviors either on an individual level or indeed a societal level make your individual uh, your individual organizational futures look brighter and things look brighter for the people you serve. Yeah, Bill, it's Jonathan. I just, you know, would echo uh, much of what was said in the previous question and I and I think it dovetails nicely into this one. Things like, you know, committing organizations committing to paying a living wage, uh, putting pressure on funders to ensure that 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 money's there, but for boards to take up that as a challenge over the course of the next year or two, you know, how do you move your organization from your rates of pay uh, today to where they need to be and what are you going to need to be able to do to be able to you know create that set of circumstances i also think that the way we do work is going to need to substantially shift you know for the most part in the last couple months organizations have scrambled and have done unbelievably creative things to be able to continue to serve uh, especially vulnerable really well but they're working under a degree of crisis and not with much planning and as the as as folks start to you know lift their heads up and start to look you know down the road a little bit, some of it is sustainable and scalable, and some of it just isn't. Some of it isn't good client service, or it's not ideal. And so you know the extent to which they'll be able to continue to do that in the way that they're doing it now will need a lot of a lot of thinking. And and I think probably you know organizations right across the nonprofit sector will be looking for things like working together in new ways, consolidating themselves with other agencies that do similar kinds of work or that can assist them in different ways. 
because it's it's going to this will, you know, come to a point where funding is going to get tight and other creative measures to keep to attract and retain really great staff is going to is going to come up. So maybe that looks like more flexible working arrangements. I can I can break some news here for you, Bill, on your program. <laughs> we're, just, uh, we're just about to implement a four day work week at Laraday. One hates to follow uh, the lead of New Zealand, but I, uh, we, we just felt really strongly that our work life and our home lives were being blended in uh, a particularly complicated way and that we needed to do something to try to reset the balance. So we're going to do a six month uh, pilot project here and uh, work four days and get paid for five and see what happens. So, you know, we're in a maybe a privileged kind of position to be able to flip that switch and do it. But I think there's a lot of creative solutions out there to manage time differently that will shift the burden of responsibility from workers to whole organizations to be able to absorb that that change in the way we're doing our work. Ah, thank you. Yeah, in your uh, comments, Jonathan, you reminded me of the phenomenon we all experienced last summer, Tent City, uh, and as a result of closing of the warming, warming room, which is the... Uh, facility in Peterborough that served homeless people, there suddenly appeared in a large downtown park in Peterborough, actually a county park, a collection of tents, and it grew to 40, 50 tents. And the impact of that was that the rank-and-file citizenry suddenly saw, we have a homeless problem. (laughs) Now, intellectually, I'm sure everyone knew it, or most people knew it, but seeing those tents, it made it vivid. And uh, I, I have no idea of the long-term impact on fundraising for those organizations, but I, I remember remarking at the time on another program that it was a wake-up call for us that, in fact, Peterborough has a significant uh, housing problem, and we have to deal with this. And it's almost uh, as if we need a, a visual reminder of these things to uh, realize that they are there. Other thoughts about this, the uh, attitudes and behaviors that could change that make futures brighter. This is Yvonne again. Um, I'd like to echo uh, Jonathan's point about changing the way that we work. And I think, you know, the, the ecology of um, organizations in Peterborough uh, has, has always been dominated by this culture of collaboration. But I think more than ever, as we look forward to recovery and life beyond that, that um, that's something that we've, we should really be led by. So the NCC is, uh, receives a large chunk of federal funding, so we don't actually have access to a lot of uh, nonprofit um, funding schemes that have been that have been uh, introduced. This means that we're able to sustain our staff, but that also means that the implementation of programs to deliver services is is impacted because of um, fundraising. Um, we're, we're in this big pool now that everybody has to try and tell their story uh, to stay yes. relevant. And um, I, I think, you know, for us to change the lens from let's build in-house capacity to do something, to turn it to how can we lift our partners up at the same time so that they can include us in their service delivery? So, for example, you know, the Kawartha Food Share received funding from uh, the Community Foundation to to reach out to people with food boxes. And we were very lucky that they reached out to us and said, hey, you know, of the clients that you serve, can they be helped by these food boxes? So it's not oh, us. 
you know, fundraising necessarily just for our clients, but it's something that lifts the community as a whole. And same for CR, um, CCRC with their with their housing platform. It's something that benefits everybody as a whole. Yes. Uh, Jonathan, you referenced collaboration. Well, and Yvonne, you just referenced collaborations as well and new possibilities. Are there other actions or ways uh, of just being uh, in our community as organizations and individuals that would be very positive, uh, both for your organizations and the people you serve? So will the waning uh, restrictions brought on by that pandemic reveal uh, possibilities that were previously hidden and just out of mind? For example, I've read more and more, and we've already referenced it in this discussion, um, uh, there's more and more online about the possibility of implementing a national basic income program in January in, in Canada. Now, last I think it was last November, uh, I spoke with Evelyn Forget, who's the economist expert in the basic income in Canada and she was on the program and her reply to my sort of devil's advocate position say well won't it cost a lot of money she said well we're already halfway there you know if you sum up child benefits CPP OAS various other programs we already are covering a fair amount compared to some other countries and it wouldn't take all that much in terms of federal spending to turn it into a true uh, basic income program. So what other uh, creative possibilities are in view now that maybe were hidden from us back in January before all this really broke? I think that uh, for us, flexibility, like the flexibility of staff, of clients, like I talked uh, sort of at the beginning about using remote, some different options um, for people to be able to connect with uh, their clients. And in some, you know, it doesn't work for everybody, of course. There's some, there's a lot of times, you know, you can't do counseling maybe um, from your home, you know, because it's not a safe place or you don't have a confidential room. But there's other times when we've been missing people um, that now we're able to get in contact with more, you know, we're finding that some people will probably prefer this method of delivery Going forward, if you think about someone who's a caregiver, who it's very difficult to get out of the home if they're looking after someone that needs assistance, but maybe they're okay to be in another room or parents of young children or, um, you know, certainly for some of our clients who access our housing resource center, having the option to use the the chat, like they may have a phone, then maybe that's the, the, um, the only way that they're able to connect. So I think... I mean, the whole sector, the whole world, you know, has had to be flexible and adapt, you know, really quickly with no notice and put things into place. And some of those things probably wouldn't have happened otherwise, may never have happened or may not have happened for a long time. And we've, you know, us, like I'm sure other organizations as well, found like how amazing it is when you're motivated, how quickly you can make changes and get things into place. And in some times, if we're able to go back to a blend, be able to meet more clients' needs more broadly, which will be very, you know, a positive outcome of some of the changes. Uh, what other creative possibilities might be out there? No, thank you for that, Kirsten. That makes, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, this is Brianna. Sure. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I certainly think the, you know, the possibility of basic income, you know, we're viewing that in a really different light right now, because I think, as you mentioned, or as your, um, your past interviewee had mentioned, yeah, uh, Dr. Forget, yeah. you know, we were already part of the way there in funding 
different programs and that the cost associated with the basic income program uh, may not have been that much more. Um, but I think in the context of a pandemic where all of a sudden you have a huge shift in work and the government's working to develop new programs and unveil those and the costs are um, you know, unknown and the programs are untested and there's quite a bit of uncertainty around you know, who will qualify and how and for when, uh, for how long. I think that you know, the benefits of having a basic income program are even more visible because you know, there would have been an opportunity for something that may have been a little bit less complex and that the costs um, you know, may have been a bit more uh, understood and um, the process a bit more tested. So I think there are some really exciting opportunities around, you know, around how we support the livelihoods for, you know, for everybody. Uh, and I think, um, you know, as Kristen mentioned, I think there's some really great opportunities related to workplace flexibility. And I think that workplaces are having to acknowledge the, you know, so the tenuous balance of uh, family life and work life and that there were lots of types of work that many of us were doing related to family that um, were hidden um, or weren't as uh, weren't as present in the workplace as they are right now. Um, and certainly GreenUp has lots and lots of, of parents um, with young children who are working as best they can to, to navigate being at home during a pandemic and and being able to be compassionate about you know the challenges that folks are are facing, the diversity of challenges that folks are facing, and to be able to respond to their needs. Um, and to support them and continuing to work, you know, in, in creative and new ways is, you know, it's been really vital for our sustainability over this, over the past few months. And, and I think there are lessons learned for our organization and I'm sure for other organizations that, you know, that will inform how we address work-life balance moving forward. And, and it's, uh, it's nice to hear that Larry Days are able to go to a <laughs> but I mean, I think that, you know, previously we would, you know, we would hear of other countries doing things like that and it, and it didn't, you know, we, we didn't quite understand how it might be able to, to apply in a Canadian context. And I think there's, you know, there's lots of um, new learnings that are, are emerging, you know, because we're all working in a really different context right now. And so I think that that's really exciting. And, and I think there's also lots of really exciting conversations around federal stimulus, stimulus money and, and the possibility of a green recovery and, and thinking about as we rebuild, thinking about resilience more broadly and as it relates to, to climate change. And I think that those conversations are really exciting as well, because I think like the not-for-profit sector, you know, the private sector is also, you know, they're, they're re rethinking things and rethinking how they can ensure sustainability in the long term. And, and I think it's perhaps more conceivable that we would experience something like this again and perhaps related to climate. And, and so I think that there is a new attention and focus on the need for um, resilience and sustainability to, to, to address climate change. Um, and, and I think the conversations around green recovery stimulus are, are really exciting ones. Yes, that's an interesting phrasing you use, uh, Brianna. I, I, the green recovery, I know a few weeks ago I had a panel of uh, students on who are active in the environmental movement and they were talking about a fair recovery. And I asked one, I asked, uh, or spell that out because at that point I hadn't really come across the phrase. And uh, as you say, it's so important to have these conversations so that the recovery is not simply a return to same old, same old with all its dysfunction, but we are adding on these other lenses to fix things that were broken. Now to politics, if you don't mind. And I, I realize this is a sensitive area for. <laughs> in fundraising times, but from a political perspective, I'm wondering what might be possible now in the new 
almost post-pandemic environment that might not have been possible a few months ago. Now, for example, one possibility might be increased openness to paying frontline workers in long-term care a living wage with benefits so they could work at only one institution instead of having to hop between two or more institutions, grabbing shifts wherever. Are there other possibilities like that, that the situation has made, uh, for want of a better uh, describer, uh, politically more palatable? I can jump in uh, to get us started here, Bill, if you want. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I I think that uh, long-term care is a really obvious example of where, you know, the system needs to drive a lot more money uh, to make it an attractive job. I mean, we could we could wave a wand tomorrow and say we are going to pay, you know, frontline workers in long term care uh, what they're worth. And it would cost a lot of money, but we still wouldn't have the people. Um, We're just not making it an attractive enough career and occupation for enough people to go into it. And that's not true in long term care. It's true. uh, Sorry, that's true in long term care. But it's also true in in a lot of other frontline social service agency uh, work. And so, you know, there's uh, lots of group homes right now where folks aren't, you know, seeing any of their family. They're only seeing workers. There's a lot of, again, I think there'll be a lot of built up anxiety and, uh, and trauma through this period. And I hope there's not a huge turnover of staff in a lot of sectors that that Larry Day works with. I, um, I think that we really need to take care of those workers and those agencies and organizations uh, because right now they're hanging on and they're getting through something, but there's going to be uh, there's going to be you know an exhale after it, and uh, I really I, you know I really see a need to pay a lot of good attention to to how we fund and how we um, you know what we expect of those workers. Absolutely, other changes that might be possible. Anyone else sensing that something may become loose that was previously bolted down tight? This is Michael, um, I, one of the reflections that I, I have is that. If as as restrictions ease and, and as things start to open up, I think each employer will have to have a degree of flexibility that they've maybe not been accustomed to before. And, and I, I'm fortunate that we, you know, one city Peterborough, it's a, it's a it's a smaller, uh, nimble organization, and we've been able to respond to this quite well, particularly around you know home and and you know, offering curriculum from from home. I guess one of my my hopes for for most non nonprofit workers is we're all kind of coming to a place where we're becoming more adaptable and, and we're we're able to to work with people where where they're at. Uh, I guess one of the back to the previous question, one of the, my hopes for the the months ahead is that uh, if 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 school doesn't open up in September though, I don't know what we're gonna do. I, I'm I'm uh, we're, we're kind of just holding on and and. Um, surviving at this point with with our children, but I, I really oh. do hope that schools do do open, or we're at a place where we we can uh, uh, be there with with the pandemic that, that that it's safe enough to do so. Because if it doesn't, I'm not sure how how long we can uh, both work from home and and be with our children at the same time. Yes, yes. Well, and probably all of us have heard remarks from parents uh, expressing a newfound. Uh, respect for the work that uh, education workers, uh, education assistants, and teachers do every day. (laughs) It ain't easy, as we know. Wonderful. Well, uh, any final thoughts before we close down here in terms of changes that happen or things that should happen as the pandemic lifts? Brianna, I was just going to add that I think, you know, over the past couple of weeks with the the protests that we've seen across the U.S. and across Canada and the oh, yes. intersection of um, the, you know, the Black 
the protests, anti-racism protests and Black, Matter, Black Lives Matter movement and the pandemic, I think there is, you know, a real increase in awareness around racial disparities related to health and the pandemic but also related to community safety. Um, and that there's lots of conversations that are happening, and I think, you know, related to how communities can rethink the provision of health services and also how communities can rethink the provision of uh, safety and emergency services to make sure that um, we're, we're creating and supporting a more equitable, equitable, equitable community um, and just community. And so I think that, um, you know, it's worth it's worth mentioning those shifts that I think we're we're seeing in the context of of COVID, um, but that specifically relate to um, to racism um, and racism yes. in Canada and the U.S. Oh, absolutely. No, thank you for mentioning that. So thank you so much for doing this, Kristen, Jonathan, Michael, Yvonne and Brianna uh, for your time and joining me in, in this discussion. This has been our 22nd program. So until uh, next week, that would be the 18th. This is Bill Templeman. Thank <laughs> you.